Welcome to the Money Wise Women Show, brought to you by MoneyMorphosis.com. Are you ready to be inspired to upgrade your financial skills? Listen to feminine leaders sharing practical advice and valuable insights. Shift your money mindset, improve communication skills, and learn financial management tips. Although we do not provide investment advice, you can check out MoneyMorphosis.com. That's money morphosis.com to find simple ways to boost your true wealth. Welcome, this is Crystal Arnold, hostess of Money Wise Women and founder of Money Morphosis. We are undergoing an exciting transformation that's both of our way that we relate to money individually And the way that we consider value and the economy as as a community and as societies. And so there is so much opportunity in this time that's been called the great turning to reimagine what wealth is, what success is, what is community, and how do we connect to a tribe and really create a culture of caring for one another, of intimacy and transparency and authentic connection. And this is what drives much of my work is is looking at that inner transformation of our own beliefs and behaviors about money and value, and also looking at the transformation of our systems and our economy and how both are absolutely crucial and important to understand. And um, this is uh, one reason why I've brought on our guest today, uh, Ruth Miller, who is uh, just a fantastic author and visionary and can really speak to what is possible for our culture, our economy, and, and our world. So, <clears throat> Dr. Ruth Miller, she's really best described as a synthesis synthesis of all things relevant to consciousness, human potential, and culture. So she works with academic institutions, individuals, nonprofits, churches, and small businesses to guide them through the confusion of today's world into this emerging culture. So she's taught dozens of classes and countless workshops on the new paradigm, systems thinking, futures research. She was director of the cybernetic systems program at San Jose State University and has been adjunct faculty at many other uh, universities. She's taught courses on world religion, science and religion, adult education, metaphysics, and um, the business of ministry at the Living Enrichment Institute and the New West Seminary. And um, she currently offers classes and workshops throughout the Pacific Northwest and an online course about the emerging culture at Gaia Living Systems Institute which you can find at www.gaialivingsystems.org. So she's earned her doctorate in system science from Portland State University's Integrating Intuition. She integrates both intuition and analysis in impact assessment and decision-making, which is very fascinating to me. She's earned her MS in the cybernetic systems from San Jose University with a thesis integrating intuitive methods in systems development and policy planning. Before that, she earned the Certificate in Environmental Studies from Long Beach State University with Teaching Guide on Radiation and Society, a BA in Anthropology and American Literature, and She has just, as you can tell, a love for learning and teaching, and she has published papers in several professional journals and was um, really numerous research reports um, about the future of energy, the potential, um, yeah, all kinds of kinds of topics. And uh, let's see, her book is um, called Creating a New World drawing on the best of the past to build a truly sustainable culture. Such a pleasure to have you here today, Ruth. 
I'd love to begin by hearing from you what you find most exciting about the work that you do. I think it really has to come down to how exciting or how wonderful it is to see um, when people wake up to the ideas and begin to implement them in their lives and see the results in their personal lives and in their community. What I find so fascinating about your background and your work is your dedication to personal and systemic transformation. And could you speak a little bit about why both are so important? When you say it that way, it's interesting. I immediately flashed. I grew up in Chicago's inner city. Uh, If anyone saw the movie Save the Last Dance, that was my neighborhood. And um, so I'm, you know, going to and from school, going to and from uh, my mother's work, whatever, I was passing buildings that were a mess and people whose lives were a mess. And I got it when I was like five that it was possible for their lives to be uh, not quite so messy, that they could be happy, they could be healthy. Those buildings could be reasonably well managed and cared for, but that the knowledge wasn't there. And I felt committed at that time to begin to um, make a difference. Then I, I was able to spend summers on farms. I was able to travel a bit and um, begin to see that there were different ways of living and some of the components of that. And I ended up in high school at uh, across the street from Stanford Research Institute, and they brought in things for us to work on. And I had a research grant when I was 16 uh, in ecology, and it woke me up a bit. <laughs> then I went to college in New Mexico, and I saw the different cultures in all these different communities and realized that different cultures – have different kinds of solutions that we could draw on. So all those pieces contributed. Then I married a guy in the Navy, and Navy communities are not noted for their health and well-being. And it was at the time when you know pollution was at one of its heights in this country. And I was seeing those issues, and I understood some of the, the, the problems, and I got involved with who were helping solve some of those problems. And so when uh, my husband got out of the Navy, I knew I needed to you know, study more and learn more about how to make all that work. Fascinating. And just uh, feel like it's, it's so important to integrate both the personal uh, and the systemic, because especially in relation to money, I've seen too many people internalize the systemic dysfunction of this extractive economy and, and where there is financial suffering and, and poverty and, and people are, you know, (laughs) to put it bluntly, like, you know, uh, just, uh, being poor is expensive. And in fact, uh, there are a number of people who have said that, who, you know, are considered recognized experts in the world. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's it's very important, especially in terms of talking about money to uh, to acknowledge the, the systemic pattern and, you know, take responsibility for our own internal beliefs and behaviors as well. Absolutely. Do you agree? Absolutely. You know, I've, when I started studying cybernetics, I began to get the relationship between our internal belief system and our not only our physical emotional experience but also our world experience our experience in the world around us and when i began to recognize the role of the mental framework the 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 psychological framework through which we are viewing the world i began to realize that i'm only going to see What I have already learned, I'm not going to see something until I've already taken it in. So if I want changes out there, I have to change what's in here in order to experience that. And that was a huge insight for me. And then that was, you know, in my 20s. And then in my late 30s, I had a very significant physical issue uh, that the doctors didn't know what to do about, except that I was... um, 
you know, the body was degrading so rapidly. I only had a few months left on the planet and they didn't know how to stop it. And I realized that what I knew about the mental framework had to apply. And I did a whole bunch of study and drew on a whole bunch of different things and got really, really clear that my physical and emotional well-being was as much a function of what I was thinking and saying as it was anything else I could look at. It was huge. And then I could begin to, in the next you know, few years, I began to uh, apply that more and more in my life and then begin to teach it. And then I began to see more and more people have shifts in their lives, um, not just their physical and emotional, but also their relationships and their financial and their cultural experience. So mm. absolutely. That's a great uh, metaphor of our well-being. I see money problems as a symptom of deeper underlying uh, beliefs and emotional uh, stuff that's going on that then manifests in in particular ways with money challenges. And so Absolutely. I think it's important, right, to address the yes. underlying root causes um, mm-hmm. to that. The extent to which our life is based on the principle that there is not enough is the extent to which we experience there is not enough. And so if we see the world as a, you know, a closed system, which it is, but we see it as a limited closed system with no inputs and no ways to expand what's available to us, then we will experience you know, harder and harder times. If we can begin to recognize that um, the, the extent to which we work harmoniously with how nature works and how our internal systems are designed to work, then is the extent to which we can see more and more possibilities for um, abundance. You know, just looking at an oak tree and recognizing the millions of acorns from one oak tree and recognizing that each one of those acorns is potentially another oak forest, not just another tree, you know, begins to awaken one mind away from the assumption of scarcity to an assumption of abundance, which then frees us up to not be grabbing for what we think is so scarce. Yes, it's like we are designed to be prosperous and abundant and like nature and then with the society that messaging of not enough and and the way uh, advertising tells us we have to consume to to be enough and to be more and something's lacking and and then our drive for growth and like you said that grasping or as they call it in buddhism the hungry ghost that's never yes. fed is is so yes. destructive. So I'm curious, what what brought you to write your book, and and why did you uh, write this? All right, <laughs> this is a book that was originally guidelines for my students uh, way back when, just before I actually went into being metaphysician full time, I was uh, still training people to be consultants in sustainability and community development. And this was a, a, a pattern, if you will, that they could use to begin to assist their clients in accomplishing those goals. And um, it, you know, it was very useful. It's you know, many people, probably hundreds around the world have been using it. it was, and then but, somewhere along the line, someone said, well, you need to reach a larger market with this. And this is a fun story. I said, okay. And so some, and I had written it on a now thoroughly out of date word processor. There was no way I could uh, recreate it short of retyping it at that point. And uh, someone offered to do that. And I never saw her or the manuscript again. And that happens three times. Someone would offer to transform the hard copy into electronic copy for me, and it always disappeared. And the fourth time, um, it was someone offering to scan it, and it disappeared. And that was my last copy. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, really, this is a lot harder than one would have thought. (laughs) 
<laughs> and fi- I was sharing that story with one of my former students a while back, and about a year ago. And she said, oh, well, I think I still have my copy. And she did. And so we scanned it, and I returned it to her, and then I had electronic copy. Um, and so then I could work with that and bring the basics of what had been written back almost 25 years ago into what is current and useful today. And um, at the request of many people who are saying, I really want you know, what you are teaching, for example, through Gaia Living Systems Institute, I really want to have something like that on paper in front of me. And so the book was created. Now, the version that you have was an initial print run, and it turns out that in the scanning process, a lot of things um, you know, that I thought had been picked up by the proofreader uh, were in fact picked up by the proofreader, but she sent the wrong PDF to the printer. Um, so oh, the printing has a lot of errors in it. <laughs> oh, gosh. What I a know. journey. <laughs> <laughs> the story of this book is outrageous. So I, I'm I'm looking at this thing and I'm you know realizing I have to go through it and in the process I've had some feedback from the few um, the, I think we did maybe 150 in that first run to, just to get it out there and get some response and um, I found that I could really bring it home and bring more of that understanding of the nature of our belief systems into it. And so I've redone it, and it's going to be reissued here at the beginning of the year as a home, we can change America's future, or humanity's future. We can change humanity's future. Mm. So that's... um, that's what's happening now. The same basic concept, the same basic text, integrating more of the metaphysical, more of the cybernetic into what had been at one point a guideline for sustainable development. Oh, love it. Wow, how it actually, uh, you know, th- became better through all exactly. the Exactly. I love it when it works like that. <laughs> So a fascinating uh, part of the book is is about rethinking our economic myths. And I was wondering if you could briefly tell us about some of those. When I was looking at um, helping these people help develop sustainable systems, I realized that their mental framework, their fundamental assumptions were getting in the way because they were assuming that, of course, for example, uh, capitalism looks like large corporations that are based on profits. And they were assuming that um, we, you know, we were living in a world of scarcity and so on. So I, I wanted to go through and pick some of those core ideas and you know, clearly, linearly, rationally walk them through all the reasons they're false. (laughs) And so, you know, there is that whole section on those four economic myths um, that is designed to say, you know, if, if we can leave those ideas behind, we can have a different experience on this planet. And so one of the myths um, is the idea that what we have in what I'm calling corporate capitalism is the free trade or the free uh, market system that Adam Smith laid out. And no, there is no relationship. Smith would not recognize what we've got today in any way. So, you know, how is that so? Why is that so? If you look at the kind of capitalism he was involved in, it was a world in which virtually everyone you did business with, with someone you were related to in some way, you know, you, you, you and you certainly weren't going to, you know, squeeze your, you know, your, your future in-laws, for example, or your cousin Billy down the road. And the guy who was, you were getting your materials from was probably, you know, your uncle Sam or whatever, you know, there were relationships between these people. And the other piece of it was the assumption was that the consumer drove the system in Adam Smith's free market system. It's, a bunch of people who know each other producing products so that people can use and, and, and be effective with those products. 
in our world, in the corporate capitalism world, it's a bunch of people who do not know each other, who are protected from ever being held responsible for anything they do, with the legal requirement to maximize their profits and nothing about their product or their service, except minimal you know, uh, safety requirements. This is a huge difference. There is no relationship between capitalism as this gen the last several generations has experienced it and the free market system of Adam Smith. So that was one of the core ideas I wanted to help people get. Another one is that the corporate capitalist system is based on continually expanding into new territories, finding new sources, new resources, exploiting those resources for maximizing profits, and moving on. Well, yeah, we've reached the edges of that on the planet. And we you know, really started to reach those in the 70s. But unless you go under the ocean, there isn't much more to exploit. Um, some of the very, very uh, high altitude areas, some of the very you know, intense desert areas, Antarctica, they're looking, you know, they're what, 60 odd bases in Antarctica looking to exploit resources there. But in terms of you know the overall planet, that's maybe 10% of what we have been doing in corporate capitalism for the last um, oh, 80 years, almost 100 years. And so that's if that's over, then what the economist Kenneth Boulding called cowboy economics needs to be rethought. We can't continue to expand uh, resource base. We can't continue to expand markets. The idea that growth is necessary for uh, health and well-being of a business is antithetical to life in a community, life on a closed system, life on this planet. There has to be the recognition that there is a balance that is sustainable that can be achieved and that you want to achieve it. And it's and that involves reusing resources and that involves rethinking all kinds of things. I have a friend who says that the wealth of America is in her landfills because for the last 50 years we've thrown everything away uh, instead of making use of it, which is an, another way of looking at the whole cowboy economics assumption. So those are a couple of the things that I really wanted people to get. Don't don't make don't assume that what you think it is is what it is, or that we have to have it in the future. Yeah, and and it's those are such great um, things to point out because they are so foundational and to economics and and taken as truth, and yet it's based on this outdated mechanistic way of seeing the parts of a system and not seeing it as a whole living system, and it urgently needs to be updated, our understanding of economics, that we can't have endless growth within ecological limits, and that, you know, uh, debt with compounding interest continues to drive wealth accumulation and uh, a host of other um, problems. You know, as you said, the corporate mandate is to maximize profits with no legal, little to no legal accountability. And so I, I agree. It's so important to reframe what, what economics is as Essentially, I, I see the economy as a place where we come to care for one another, where we bring our unique gifts and we bring our needs and we connect in a way where we can match those. And so thank you for, for um, yeah, bringing those, some of those myths to light. Well, there's another piece of that, too. I come to my understanding of the economy as an anthropologist, which was my first degree, and um, in anthropology, when we say we're looking at a culture's economy, we are looking at the production and distribution of goods and services. What are the systems, what are the processes by which goods and services are produced and distributed? That's all it is. And mm -hmm. if we recognize that a culture is a caring community, then Caring, as you suggest, must be a fundamental uh, quality or attribute of that system of production and distribution. Economics does not have to be what our 
um, economics professors <laughs> have been trying to convince people it must be for the several, last couple of generations. Right. <clears throat> and um, I'd like to speak some to just redefining, uh, you know, wealth and success and, and the power of our language and our beliefs. I've, I've developed a true wealth template, which accounts for four aspects of wealth, which includes traditional financial wealth, but also inner wealth, relational and environmental wealth. And I've found that when people have that more holistic uh, picture to look at their assets and liabilities in each category, the money piece becomes much less intimidating and they're able to look at their overall sense of well-being. And I'm curious what you think the power of, of redefining uh, wealth is. I think, yes, absolutely. I love what you're doing. And uh, wealth comes wheel, which is the basis of well-being. It's also the basis of health. And so wealth, health, wheel, uh, well-being, it's all the same thing. So when you start seeing, seeing it in those terms, it you know, can begin to make the shift in people's awarenesses. The other piece that I appreciate in what you're doing and what other people have been doing is if we start realizing that finances are not the only resources that we have for our well-being. Um, there was a time, there have been many times in, in my career, I've been piecing together for a long time, and there have been various times when what I was receiving was a place to live, not the money for the place to live, but the actual place to live, right? Um, or there have been times when I received the equipment to do the work um, instead of the money to buy the equipment. And there's a wonderful man named Bernard Leotard. Are you familiar with his work? Yes, he, yes. Oh, good. He wrote a book called The Future of Money, and he points out in the past of money that um, – the money exists for exchange between strangers. Then in a community, it's a gift exchange. It's a direct, you know, oh, you need this? Sure, I've got this, you know, or, you know, oh, you know, I could use that for a little while. Thank you very much, kind of thing. Uh, there is, you know, the money is only when someone comes through town that you don't know and you aren't going to be able to have future interactions with. What a great way to look at money, <laughs> Mm, yes, yes. So important to uh, to say that we can have complementary currencies and many ways to uh, exchange with other people. Mm-hmm. And again, back to caring, right? If 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 you're someone I care about, money doesn't have to be part of the process. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. So let's talk, too, about the culture shift that's happening. And, you know, in the book, you uh, kind of dis discuss what you call an economics for sustainability and talk about village economies, river basins, market towns, and, and a fascinating way of, of looking at the whole ecosystem. And I'm wondering, you know, what, what you would like to share about that. Thank you. If, you know, what we're saying is true and that uh, the economy is about the production and distribution of goods and services and if what we're saying is that the uh, there are ways to live for the long term on this planet, what I had to do was go back and find who's done that. And I have found that there are villages up to a couple of hundred people who that have been occupied for thousands of years by the same families. Um, supporting themselves quite comfortably. They have everything they need. They have comfortable shelter. They have beautiful clothing. They have time for art and music and dance and more than enough food. And I'm going, isn't that interesting? <laughs> and so I started studying you know, as many as I could of that kind of a cultural uh, framework, what I call the gardening culture. And it turns out that was what was in place for much of humanity prior to what we call civilization and I call empire culture. The empire culture is the culture that takes what it wants, exploits it, and leaves behind so much waste. 
where we have gardening cultures, we have people who are sharing and restoring and renewing and have virtually no waste. So the empire cultures are all over the planet now. Originally, they started in the various river basins, uh, building on and overtaking the uh, gardening cultures that were there. So if we want to live sustainably in the future, is there a way that we can have the benefits of those long-term gardening cultures uh, without the um, really the shadow side that we've been trained? You know, we've been told that it, you know dirt farming and um, you need to till the garden and and replant every year and all of that, and that that's time-consuming and that's hard work and you know, all of that. And so I found a thing back in the 70s, again, a man named Bill Mollison in Tasmania developed a way of uh, planting the land around a house such that within a, a couple of hundred feet, that is, you know, a quarter of an acre, you can have all the food and fiber needs for a family of four at about two to three hours a day, five or six days a week. Wow. And that would be all your your clothing, your shelter, and your food, and you know taken care of and i'm I'm really impressed, right and it turns out most gardening cultures that's the case four hours a day, six days a week, and all of your needs are met. so I'm suggesting perhaps we need to look at that again and look at can we recreate villages? that are based on permaculture, that are based, based on renewing the land and renewing the soil and constant production of mutually supportive crops. And, of course, there is a lot of permaculture work being done around the world now. The other piece, then, is when you start looking at that, you can say each household can be essentially self-sufficient, which is how it was back when this country was founded. Unless you were actually in the city uh, you know, the, the wharf, a fishing village or the wharf, but even there, every household had gardens. When Ralph Waldo Emerson was growing up in Boston, his family had a cow and an orchard. Um, you know, all of the founding fathers had those kinds of resources. It was part of life. We've moved so far away from it, believing that civilization was urbanization, and I'm suggesting that may not be the case. So we've got villages. Now, the villages need to be um, connected with each other, and there are support systems that a small village can't provide. And that in his history in New England, in England, and much of Europe is in a market town. And a market town usually has maybe 5,000 people, around 3,000 people, and that's where um, there's, you know, places where people can exchange goods, there may be some legal support, there may be some financial institutions, there's transportation to other parts of the world. And what I was looking at as an ecologist is, well, that's all well and good, but how do we manage the air and water and soil quality for these? And I realized that um, in Hawaii there is an assumption that the land runs for a clan from the top of the ridge down into the ocean. That a whole clan has all the resources from the rocks at the top of the ridge all the way through the forest, through the pouring water, through the streams and the lakes and the ponds, the agricultural fields, all of those things out to the beach, out into the water, the ocean, where they have the fishing and so on. And that's how Hawaii is divided up. Each clan has one of those ahupua'as is what they call them in Hawaii. And I was looking at that in this country, or in, in North America, where I'm very familiar, I've lived all over the country now, um, I began to be aware that we have that same possibility, and it's so evident in Oregon. If you take a river basin, and you say from the headwaters out to where it flows into something else, whether it's a lake or the ocean, if you take from one ridge on one side of the river to the ridge on the other side of the river, and you create one, if you will, county, then you control all the water quality, all the soil quality, all the timber resources, the geology, all of the waste products, everything that is going to affect the people in that area. The air basin is also the watershed and the river basin. So 
that began to be my model of having villages scattered around in a river basin running from ridge to ridge and a market town down near where that river began to flow into the larger body of water so that all the villages could connect to whatever uh, transportation was there. And then realizing that at the same time I'm doing all of this work, there's some people doing the regional, bioregional work. Uh, the Bioregion Institute has declared a number of bioregions around the country. And then there was a guy named Joel Garreau who created political regions. He called the Nine Nations of North America. That's the name of his book. So I started merging bioregions and his Nine Nations, and I created what I call biogeopolitical cultural regions. And you can identify about 15 of those regions in North America, ranging from the Ecotopia region, that is where I'm currently located in Oregon. I think you are too, in Oregon, Washington, and parts of California, uh, to Mexamerica down, you know, Arizona, New Mexico, parts of California, Texas, Dixie, the islands, the foundry, and so on, New England, uh, the uh, New, New France, Quebecois, and so on. So we have a, a range of biocultural regions that have their own geologies, within which we have a range of where people could be controlling their own air, water, soil quality through you know, uh, a democratic representative process. And each of those regions can be essentially economically self-sufficient, 80 to 90% self-sufficient, and then trading with other regions for those 10 to 20% of needs that are not available or luxuries that are not available in their own region. So what we then end up with is comfortable living, regardless of what's going on elsewhere in the world, in my local communities, and I have this exchange with the international market through um, you know, in global regional exchanges. And I'm assuming, of course, in that some form of telecommunications uh, in order to make all of that work. Wow, thank you for sharing that. I just feel like that description of, of what's possible with such uh, detail from your anthropology studies is so fascinating when people are overwhelmed at the scale and scope of problems and go into despair and can't possibly imagine it's it's so helpful to say hey it wasn't always this way let's look at the best practices let's implement those at a scale that really uh, connects us to place and, you know, I know uh, people working on different biocultural uh, regenerative hubs that can yeah. really deeply know the wisdom and resources and challenges of, of a place and, and then connect with a network of other, other bioregions. So I, I yes. love that description. Thank you. Thank you. It's been just a delight to hold that as a possibility for humanity and to see so many people moving in that direction. You know, I, I saw an article recently about millennials who are setting up agri-villages around farms so that their kids can be involved in food production and collection. And that's absolutely in alignment with what I'm talking about. The, the Danish movement of co-housing, I've helped set up a bunch of co-housing groups around the country. Um, you know, there's so many ways in which we have uh, people moving in in these directions. They don't have the same framework, but they're they're moving this way, and I love it. Yes, yes. Well, let's uh, let's take a quick break here, and then when we get back, dive more into you know what what creates healthy relationships and governance within those uh, in those communities, and how how do we really transform things in in good relation with our uh, people and and the earth that we live on. So we'll be back in just a moment. Are you ready to enjoy greater financial freedom? Perhaps you're like Emily, a creative entrepreneur who wants to increase her income to provide for her family. Using the free video training found at discoveryourtruewealth.com, she learned the secrets to accessing hidden resources and creating lasting wealth. Emily learned a persuasive negotiation technique to bring in more money with her top clients. 
she boosted her credit score and opened new financial doors while reducing expenses. And she took specific steps to strengthen her existing relationships and create a safety net for her business. With the Discover Your True Wealth training, thousands of women have improved their bank balances and secured their family's future. With this free video course, you'll transform beliefs, behaviors, and skills with money. Take charge of your financial situation with the training found at discoveryourtruewealth.com. Welcome back. We are here with Dr. Ruth Miller talking about fascinating culture change, what that means with biocultural hubs and, and creating a more regenerative, healthy culture and economy. Um, I've I've been working for almost two years with the Post-Growth Institute, and we're a nonprofit, and uh, uh, we are going to be offering a training for people to run something called an offers and needs market in the new year. Um, it's, it's a super powerful in-person way where people can come together and uh, through a 90-minute process, uh, both share their offers to the community, personal and professional, as well as their needs. And we've seen incredible things happen with people connecting, feeling greater belonging. It opens up the space for synchronicity and for people to feel seen and get more confidence, you know, pitching their projects. And um, curious what, what you have to say about, you know, why, why the offers and needs market could contribute to a more healthy community and culture. I love this thing that you're doing. I've sort of been aware of the Post-Growth Institute for a while and been going, yay, I'm so glad they're doing this. <laughs> and, you know, when you shared with me about this market, it just makes so much sense. One of the things that I do, I work with uh, churches, and one of the things that I do is I encourage at least once a year and preferably twice a year, uh, everyone emptying their closets of everything that they are ready to let go of, bringing it into the sanctuary or the fellowship hall, and you know, dividing it up into type of clothing and everyone taking home what they want, and then moving what is left into the uh, local homeless uh, you know, clothing banks. And that has been very effective. We, you know, the only money is if we provide a little tea, and then they can you know, put in a donation for that. I think gift exchanges are the most efficient form of economy out there. And you know, I know community dollars are often related to the offers and needs kinds of setup. And, and it doesn't have to be stuff. It can be services. We used to do skills banks way back when, when we were doing uh, community development in the inner city. So more power to you. Yes, please, more. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, and, and it's amazing to give people that flexibility where they can choose whether it's a gift, a barter, a certain set amount, and just kind of have have that flexibility where it isn't um, – yeah, so like like they can share things that they're passionate about that maybe they would never do for 40 hour a week at a paid job. Um, mm -hmm. so, so it really unearths a lot of the wealth that's already in our community that's latent, that's invisible, that we can't see, and, and right. really brings it out. I love that. You know, and the moment you separate, I got to earn a living doing this from I love doing this, you begin to have, you know, true wealth showing up. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So, gosh, tell tell me more about, you know, what let's let's talk a little about the the governance piece and being engaged citizens because so much of our culture tells us we're primarily consumers and yeah. so how, how do people begin to engage I mean we've seen in the midterm elections a whole wave of younger women and people of color uh, coming into uh, into power which is great and just uh, curious what you you'd like to say about that you know, as long as our focus is on the national level, we're actually in trouble. Mm -hmm. I love that, you know, people are moving into that. But I, I've been fascinated um, with, the, for example, the green politics movement. You may be aware that um, 
throughout the country there are things called soil and water conservation districts. I have yet to see a, grand, a green candidate run for one of those positions. Yeah. I mean, really? Soil and water conservation, and they're not interested? Um, you know, or school boards, you know, the number of you know, progressives who don't get on the local school boards. Um, there is so, you know, the, the local city council. In my vision of the world, the decision-making happens at a very local level. Uh, there's, you know, an old tradition from um, New England, and that comes from England, but in New England, America, we have what we're, we're called town meetings, and virtually everyone that lived in a town would come together, and if there was an issue, they'd, they'd you know, hash it out and work it out, and, you know, if there, you know, if there was a need for leadership on something, that, you know, someone from the town would be chosen to move ahead with that. Well, I'm suggesting something like that at the village level. And when I say a village, I'm talking about very few people. One of the things that I work with is a, a system of numbers, and it has to do with how the brain is structured. Most of us are only re able to actually connect directly and deeply with five to nine people, five people to nine max, five minimum, nine max. In fact, I used to say, if you don't have five people you can be authentic with, you probably are depressed because you're repressing too much. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. But if you have that, your five to nine folks, that's your spiritual family, if you will. That's your emotional family. And you get together with someone else, and they got five to nine folks, right? So now, and each of those have five to nine folks. So we're looking at about 25 to 81 people that are our tribe. These are the folks who show up for weddings and funerals and birthday parties and stuff like that. 25 to 81 folks. Well, if you've got a village that size, everyone knows each other, everyone can love each other, everyone can care for each other. And again, I work a lot with churches. If I've got a church in that size range, I have a very comfortable congregation. They work things out. But if I've got a group that's getting beyond the 80 and getting closer to 150, Anthropologists have seen over and over again that when a, a community gets to 150, it splits. It splits into two or three communities of, guess what, 25 to 81 folks. <laughs> wow. So we see this over and over again. A community group is about that size. Having said that, I'm suggesting the villages need to be about that size. And then it's going to be easy. Oh, we need something on the roads done? So-and-so, he's the guy who talked to. Oh, we need something on health care done? So-and-so, she's the one to manage that. You know, we, everyone knows that. They feel that. It's part of what they're about. When you get to 150 people, it's been demonstrated over and over again in, you know, that it, you start breaking down into multiple communities. People don't really know each other, and they start feeling uncomfortable. So small villages, selecting people to be leaders in specific task areas. And one of those folks is going to be one who goes and talks to the other villages when there are things that need to be done. If we go with a river basin model, then what I'm suggesting is the whole river basin is managed on a village-by-village -village basis and then interconnected with a representative from each of the villages. And in my model, 25 to 81, you would not have more than 81 villages. You would have somewhere, let's say, 50-ish villages in a large river basin area and a market town. And the people, the market town would be designed, think of your hand, and each finger is a, a residential neighborhood. And between the fingers is forest land, farmland, however you want to work that. It's green space. And then the palm of your hand is where whatever urban kinds of services might be, a warehouse, warehouses, offices, whatever. Does that make sense? Well, each one of those fingers then is another village, and they each get a representative at whatever the shared river basin concerns are. It's all very close at hand. It's people knowing each other and being familiar with each other and working on local stuff. Then someone from that group one person from that group gets to talk to the other groups like them, the other river basins in the bioregion culture, in the biocultural region. And so they have a council of folks. And again, it's 
that 25 to 81 so people can talk. The U.S. Congress right now is, what, 645 people, I think? You know, mm-hmm. And even the Senate is really too big with 100 people. It's gone over that so that there isn't that ability to work through things with someone you really know. So then the bioregional you know, council, uh, councils each send one person to a continental council. You've got about 15 people. Maybe you send two. Maybe you send, you know, but you're still aiming for that 25 to 81 kind of range. So that's my suggestion for a way to have a representative uh, republic, if you will, a republic, I mean, democratic republic um, that is based on people participating at the, with the decisions that affect them most directly. The village level handles their land, their um, communications issues, their infrastructure. The river basin level handles their infrastructure, their soil and water quality, their education needs. The river basin is part of the region that handles their infrastructure. The region is part of a continent that handles their infrastructure. And all that's going on in terms of, quote, governance is coordination of shared resources and needs. Hmm. Wow. Thank you. Again, it's it's so interwoven, the um, design principles, whether we're talking economy, governance, land management, uh, that create more flows of information and ability for individuals to engage and communicate and, and make decisions together. Um, you know, it's, it makes me think of things like participatory budgeting, uh, you know, where there is much more cooperation and, and transparency about why we're choosing where our uh, public money goes. And Mm -hmm. I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. Part of where I, I watched some of this emerge was Oregon has something called the Comprehensive Planning Process. And I lived in Portland for two of the rounds of that process. It's 10 years, and every county has to go through it every 10 years. And we were able to, on a neighborhood-by-neighborhood basis, say, this is the kind of neighborhood we want. These are the kinds of... Um, transportation, education, housing, whatever, in our neighborhood. And then those neighborhood plans would go to a group of professionals at City Hall who would come back to us and say, well, this is what we can do based on what you've said and how we can interconnect it with the other neighborhoods around you. And it was very much the kind of structure that I'm talking about. And it works. Mm, Yes. Yeah, um, fact, can I tell you how well it works? Oh yeah, please. It, it was very cool. I had I hosted a conference in Portland uh, in the early '90s that uh, involved a, a number of Eastern Europeans, and this was you know early, very early after the war, the the wall had come down, and they came up to me, and they said, "We must meet your city designer," and I said, "You have." <laughs> The city designer is us, and over here are some of the people who are coordinating the process. I'd invited some of the city planners to that meeting. But that's how well it works when people are you know, bringing their innovative thinking and their loving caring together in groups. Oh, love that. Right. And, and bringing that power back, uh, back home and really helping people feel like they have uh, sovereignty and authority uh, within their local communities and less hierarchical systems. At, at Post Growth Institute, we have sociocracy, which is a very flat, um, flattened uh, model versus the hierarchical mm-hmm. model where there's you mm-hmm. know, communication really flowing and, and circles of, of uh, flow. And so I just uh, feel like that's really key. Um, wow. I'm with see. you on that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So much. I think I feel like we could talk for hours here. Um, I, I am curious, you know, if you have what what's really your key message that you have for listeners in these times? Don't get 
distracted by the media focusing your attention on a few very fouled up things in the national and international scene. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Focus on what is working and what can work better in your community, in your household, in your you know your uh, spiritual, emotional family. Build your skills, build your sense of well-being. Share as you can. Don't let that garbage get in the way. Um, mm-hmm. There are so many fabulous things going on in the world. You know, there's so little bad stuff going on in the world that they have to say it over and over again. Uh, (laughs) Which makes me wonder, you know, who is influencing your thought now? Anyone uh, you're reading or uh, really inspired by? There are so many people all the time. I usually am running three or four books at a time. Right now, the three or four books, I'm I'm going over again a book that I, I put together years ago called Unveiling Your Hidden Power by Emma Curtis Hopkins, my version of Emma Curtis Hopkins' teachings. I synthesized them. Um, she was the one who taught all the founders of what's called the New Thought Movement, the Unity folks, the Fillmores, uh, the Divine Science folks, and uh, Ernest Holmes with Science of Mind. So her work is really fundamental to a lot of what I'm doing. I'm also reading some uh, Yogananda. Right now it's uh, Man's Eternal Quest. I'm reading Timothy Ferris's four-hour work week because I think he's got a handle on beginning to be free of the economic system that we have been taught and using the emerging technology to facilitate living a life that is focused on who we wish to be rather than what the corporate environment says we must be. And I, you know, also put together talks every week for various groups. So I just completed one on um, the history of this time of year, Seasons of Light, where I integrate uh, Hanukkah and Advent and Yule and all those wonderful things that are helping us wake up to the light that is within us as well as around us as the nights get darker and darker. Hmm, thank you. Um, so I'd like to imagine uh, with you what what is possible in this emerging culture, this emerging economy, and and what what um, is coming forth through this great turning. And so I'd love to hear just your um, your perspective on this. I see a an end to materialism, and Charles Tart actually wrote that book, The End of Materialism. Um, I see a culture that is based on our internal state of being, our intuition, our access to deeper wisdom, a culture that recognizes the interconnected of all you know web of all the life that is working together and and people choosing a harmonious interaction with each other and with the planet i see a a life in which people will be developing and evolving in ways that we cannot even fathom at this moment uh, as we begin to tap into our full human capacity Mm, yes Yes, me too. Ah, well, <clears throat> well, tell us a little bit more if uh, listeners are like what you shared and, and would like to connect more with you, how they can do that. Thank you. My books are all available in all the usual places, so if they you know, just check out Ruth L. Miller, they'll usually find something. My website is www.ruthlmillerphd.com. And it does introduce some of my books and a lot of my current thinking. And there's a a sharings page on there that not only has some of my articles, but has a little link to a good news website, which I enjoy. Um, I'm speaking uh, regularly on the Oregon coast uh, most every Sunday. And one of the groups that I speak to, a Unitarian Fellowship, videos those and puts them on YouTube. So it's the Florence Unitarian Universalist Fellowship YouTube channel if they'd like to see what I am speaking about on Sunday mornings. Excellent. Wow. 
Well, thank you so much for sharing your inspiration, insights, and your vision for what's possible for a more healthy culture, government, uh, society, and and economy. And uh, do you have any closing thoughts? <laughs> oh, in this season that we are in the middle of right now, uh, or just beginning to enter, actually, I just want people to wake up to the warmth and the joy and the light that is inside us and realize that um, the concept of ending of one cycle and the beginning of a new is really, really helpful when you're being faced with things that are distressing. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. Well, thank you so much, Ruth, for bringing your light and your decades of dedication to learning about the human condition, to bringing into manifestation our full capacity as spiritual beings here on this planet, sharing resources, stewarding lands, uh, you know, how I, I see your vision as, as bringing greater wisdom into our systems so that they can uh, really benefit all of humanity and bring greater vitality and regeneration into our ecosystems and planet. So thank you for being a pioneer in, in this field and, and integrating um, so many uh, aspects of, of your education and, and life path to, uh, to bring forth this very valuable, your books, your writing, and, and all the work that you do. Thank you so much for sharing your inspiration here today. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, the biggest compliment you can give us is to subscribe to the show and rate and review our podcast at iTunes. Be sure to visit www.moneymorphosis.com. That's money-m-o-r-p-h-o-s-i-s.com to join the growing community of empowered women who are dedicated to creating the true wealth they deserve.